Hello and welcome to the British Empire podcast. I'm your host, Chris Nichols, and together with my co-host, J.D. Collins, we celebrate the weird and wonderful world of Whitbury Newtown Leisure Centre, the sports centre ran by nightmare boss Gordon Brittus, who means well but brings chaos into the lives of his staff, customers and long-suffering wife, Helen. Each episode looks at an episode, so we dissect and discuss. The best way to enjoy the podcast is to watch the episode we're discussing first, and that way you'll have an excellent time. In this episode, we're discussing Series 2, Episode 6, Safety First. So here we are then, listeners, the penultimate episode of Series 2. And if you were listening last week, you probably know I've been watching All's House Party on YouTube. And I actually, um, I'm bringing it up again because I saw the clips with Gordon Brittus on. Noel's house party last night, which was really, really good. So Gordon Brittus comes in as, you know, in, Chris Barry in character as Gordon Brittus and he visits Noel's house party, which I think it was, it was definitely after 1994 because I can tell the way he looks and acts is, is quite different. So, and um, yeah, I think, I think it's probably kind of 94 onwards, maybe 95, 96, but yeah, he, he, he kind of, he donned the Gordon Brittus blazer and the accent and everything. And Noel opened the door to him. It was, it was quite funny. There was like a funny little sketch where, uh, he asked if Noel Edmonds mirror's broken. He says, is it all ring? Is it all wrinkly? You can tell it reflects the time and the era of, of the nineties where those shows were massive. And then it was reflecting in the audience of Noel's house party. You'll probably have watched British Empire as well. And you just, there's nothing like that now. I mean, I think that I, I, do, do Ant and Dex still there, do their Saturday night takeaway show? Yeah, they still do that. Yeah, but I can't remember them doing something like this where actual comedy characters, you know, become part of the real world, world, so to speak. And it's, um, you're right, I didn't really anything like it, to be honest, is there? I guess Saturday Night Takeaway is kind of what came after Noel's house party that they seem to have pinched a lot of his ideas and stuff like that and put it into theirs. But um, yeah, it was just interesting seeing Brittus. It'd be interesting to know who wrote the Gordon Brittus, um, the Gordon Brittus sketches in Noel's house party because I'm guessing it wasn't Fagan and Norris but um, yeah it was I guess the, the Brits that we saw in Noel's house party it was a bit more cartoony you know it wasn't like the Gordon Brittus we're going to discuss in this episode in a moment but uh, it was still nice to see him I think I think sometimes characters can be dumbed down a bit if they're not in the right hands in terms of writers and I think that's perhaps an example of that I mean with it being Noel's house party it doesn't really matter it's not like the main show but I think you know, you can see Gordon Brittis is definitely different on Noel's house party compared to he's in the show. He's a lot more kind of, I know, dumbed down a bit more silly, a bit more wacky, I guess, to appeal to the kids yeah. who, who are watching maybe. Yeah. It's the interpret, it's like an interpretation, isn't it? What the writers might think. I mean, you, you probably think the writers of Noel's house party would have at least watched Brittis or at least be a fan of it to, to get a sense of how to write the character. But yeah, you know, I have to check the, I've seen, I think I've seen them before. I have to check them out again. Yeah. Uh, it's always good to see a bit of retro telly. <laughs> yeah, they are they are good. I always think good writing is when you when you know a character, it hits you straight away. So like when you see Victor Meldrew, you think miserable Mona, even though there's a lot more to Victor than that, and he's not actually miserable. But Basil Fawlty, I think horrible hotel manager. Nice in his bucket, you think snob. And I think with Gordon British, you think annoying anal manager. That's what that's what you know. I think. <laughs> yeah, I I think that's that's perfect way to describe him in a very short way. Yeah. Another fun fact for Noel's House Party as well, Mr. Blobby first appeared in 1992 episode. He wasn't going to be the main character. It was actually Noel dressed up and then they brought him in as a main character after series two. So and I'm sure the whole country is very grateful. Yes. <laughs> Mr. Blobby, who who was voted the worst Christmas number one ever, apparently, um, with Mr. that Mr. Blobby song in the 90s. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's probably about right, to be honest. <laughs> and Whitby Newtown Leisure Centre has a... I guess a slight similarity with a place called Gotchiland. Um, are you familiar with Gotchiland at all, John? 
Uh, it's nothing to do with the crinkly bottom world of Noel's house party, is it? So it's July 1996. Bicton Park um, hosted one of Noel Edmund's strangest ventures. Gotcha Land was a theme park based around the Noel's house party segment where celebrities were tricked, basically. Um, and the park's mascot was this kind of lion toad. And it was a small puppet that came later on. But anyway, yeah, it was really, really strange. It was a park and it was a version full of, it was basically a complete trick. It was a practical joke, this this theme park, this leisure park. Visitors, visitors would arrive and there'll be, instead of animals in the cages, so they'd pay to get into this like theme park uh, with rides and animals. They'd get there and it would just be empty cages and instead of promised wildlife, and it was just sticks representing stick insects and advertised boat tours that didn't exist. So they just walked in and there was nothing there. And it was just such a bizarre oh, thing. Oh, oh, that sounds weird. As if that would ever take off. I mean, it was closed and it was criticised because you can imagine taking your kids for a day out and the whole thing is one big practical joke and you arrive there and the place is empty. And it's like, what do you do then? I mean, it's bizarre, right? One segment on Noel's house party that possibly would work, but but seriously, a play, actual place, don't like that. that yeah. That's a joke too far. It just feels like a bad idea like Gordon Britain will create. And it also equally is empty as Whitby Newtown Leisure Centre in terms of customers, I think. But um, speaking of empty customers as well, with this particular episode, there is no customers because the Leisure Centre has been closed once again. And like Gotcha Land, Whitby Leisure Centre is once again devoid of customers. And in this episode, it's staff training. You know, they're training for fire training, fire safety. With Gordon Britain at the helm, so you can know it's going to be trouble. And... With this, I noticed looking at the Radio Times, there was actually a gap between Series 2, Episode 5 and Series 2, Episode 6 by two weeks. So that surprised me. So when I looked on the Radio Times online, the, the retrospectives, um, Series 2, Episode 5, Mums and Dads was shown on January the 30th, but Series 2, Episode 6, Safety First, wasn't shown until February the 13th, which I thought was quite surprising. You got like a, a week's gap there. It was basically because there was a, like an hour and a half long documentary on the Queen. Not the Duchess's Kent, unfortunately, but the Queen. So, yeah, I just thought it was interesting to have that gap. And the actual Radio of the Times entry got the synopsis wrong because they said this was the last episode in the series. So they must have presumed, oh, it's on for seven weeks. This is the seventh week. But they actually said this was the last episode and it wasn't. Oh, no, I mean, there's some really embarrassing um, details. Sometimes we look back over certain publications that get details wrong it's just little things like you had one job that documentary yeah. was that was it called elizabeth r by any chance it was let me have a look it was basically it was a documentary on the queen a 1992 film and it went behind the scenes of a close-up looking at the monarchy and i think it was just basically called something like queen elizabeth or something mm. like that but it was on iplayer when when the queen died last september i, I watched it it was very interesting oh uh, was it the same one right yeah so that's that's interesting that actually to have that was why i don't know why they couldn't have put it on any other night of the week yeah bizarre yeah so yeah for that particular night last of the summer wine and the british empire wasn't shown but um but there we go it was back uh, the following week and it was described british closes the leisure center in order to train his staff how to cope with emergencies be there fires, earth tremors, outbreaks of contagious diseases in the toilets, or poisonous gases, or chemical spillages. Unfortunately, the staff don't take the exercise, ser the exercise seriously. Meanwhile, Helen Brittis is trying to cope with life without the aid of tranquilizers. So not a bad synopsis, really, but yeah, they just got the detail wrong of it being the finale. Yeah, it, it, that, that's actually closer to the kind of 
synopsis I would expect for British Empire really getting across the craziness. I think what's really interesting by this point of the show is I like the way that Fagan and Norris sort of take an idea that's very much a, a central part of work life or an aspect of work life and then do like a British Empire-esque spin on it. So far I've had um an opening day with the royalty. We've had uh, an inspector come in and then we've had, you know, looking at statistics and everything and, and working everything out. And then this is, you know, fire safety. I mean, everyone has something like that. Uh, we have a fire alarm that goes up every Wednesday in, in my office at 11 o'clock. And then very occasionally it's going to be, it goes off and then we have to do the, the fire test of going out and the escape and, and how it would be if there genuinely was one. Yeah. But I think what's clever about this is, of course, they are in a leisure centre, so they would have to get involved in trying to get people out, especially in such yeah. a big building. Uh, so it, it's much more complicated. And yeah. I think that's, and, and obviously how he does it is just wonderful. Yeah. I like the way it opens where you have this alarm going off and, and him talking into the tannoy and then Carol's just totally oblivious. I think instantly you get a sense that it's not real. It's obviously a test, but it's interesting how our mindsets as individuals changes when we're, you know, it's not real compared to when it could, when it's not maybe not a real fire, but a, a real fire drill where you have to go out so much more laissez-faire about it. Yeah, it's really funny, isn't it? Because Carol is obviously just, she's not even paying attention. She's there eating what appears to be the biggest tub of tin fruit I've ever seen, like pouring it into this tub, isn't she? <laughs> oh, God. I mean, the, it was like last week, what was the, she was having like giant beans. And that's, yeah. it was weird. I, I recently went to see The Shining at the cinema. And it was, obviously, I know it's an American film, it's about 1980s, 12 years before this. But when you see the packaging in, in, in the kitchen of like... um ketchup and other bits the tins were huge you don't get anything that size anymore at all yeah it's, it's bonkers isn't it and i think i think carol she, she's eating things like like a giant would eat wouldn't she there must be like kind of industrial these like industrial pots of beans and industrial pots of of like um you know, fruit and stuff i'm guessing this is all to kind of represent uh, excuse me pregnancy because i guess with pregnancy you, you get a lot of cravings don't you and things like that so i guess that's what this is representing she's eating for two as the saying goes <laughs> eating for two i i eat for five most nights to be honest and it's only just me who lives here but there we go <laughs> and then what i notice is when helen walks in to greet carol and obviously Brits is still in the tannoy she's got a huge hat it looks like um, a hyacinth bucket hat but it's like the biggest hat i've ever seen yeah she she looks like she's going out yeah. sort of into the, to, to the countryside on a sunny day but it's interesting because you realise that she's planning a picnic in the office and even though it's going to be inside, she's still dressed as if she's going, they're going to go on a picnic in the countryside, for example. So I think she's trying to bring that sort of colour and, you know, she's trying, she's making an effort as we're going to, as we'll learn in this episode in general. She is trying her hardest to be healthier, more spontaneous and romantic in her marriage, you know, and I like the um, the enthusiasm she brings to that in this episode. Then you've got alarms going off, Britis on the tannoy. And of course, then we have um, Gordon Britis arriving at reception with Gavin and Tim carrying a woman through on a stretcher. So yeah, that this fire exercise is, um, is firmly going on, it's, it's firmly underway. And Gordon speaks to Helen, green lights the picnic with her in the office, reassuring her that the fire is only sweeping through the far side of the building. I think it's uh it's it's just typical Gordon trying to organize everything. I mean, you know that phrase, um, you couldn't organize a piss up in a brewery. Piss up in a brewery. Yeah. It's like that, I mean that's that's Gordon in a nutshell, really. But having yeah. to organize everyone when there's a fire, I mean he's not he's obviously observing everyone 
And it's obviously not a real fire, but you would wonder if he would still be that pedantic, even if there really were flames. And of course, there will be in future episodes in that yeah. building. But it's just so funny how um, how it's all him in charge and still not able to control anything. I think one of my favourite things about this episode is Colin and the the, the, the recurring joke which just gets funnier and funnier of him trying to trying to sneak. He sneaks through reception carrying Hillary over his shoulder. And the British says, Colin, where do you think you're going? You're dead. No, I'm not, Mr. Brittus. Yes, you are. You were in the kitchens when the gas cylinder exploded. I wondered if I wasn't shielded from the main force of the blast by a table. That way, I'd only be blinded. I could feel my way along the corridors carrying Hillary here. Colin, you aren't dead. I know. It, it, it's the details I like as well when he said, and got uh, Brittus kind of saying, and since this lady has a ruptured spleen, you've done her, done for her as well. Yeah. And slaps on the bottom, I noticed as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it was the yeah. 90s, weren't it? It doesn't matter. Yeah, well, it did, but it, yeah, it didn't. It did, it did, but yeah, it's uh, in a different way. Got to look over, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and then obviously Tim and Gavin arrived to put. I love, I love how fake these flames look. You know, the ones they put across the entrance, they're just great, aren't they? They're so, it's so ridiculous. It's just fantastic. Oh, it's so. I, I have to say, actually, on this one, I admire the the detail that Mister Bruce has gone through to actually. <laughs> gets on he looks like something that a child's done in his art class and and to put it there and and there's there's a bit of um i suppose there's a little bit of creativity there which you have to admire but and to an extent it can probably help if you really believe the flames are there not take into account that you know there would be smoke and flames and it'd be hot and it would make could you know it's just yeah very funny I think what's clever is it looks like something Britis has made as opposed to a good prop. So they do, they've like purposely made this bad looking prop of flames that looks especially lame. And I think that adds to the comedy. <laughs> yeah. And he, and the way that he also details quite graphically about what's happened and where the fire is going. He says at one point, unfortunately, the fire has fallen to the boiler room, igniting 300 gallons of oil, creating a fireball that's demolished reception and the doors. I mean, I don't know in what world that would probably happen, but, he's, but I suppose he's thinking about the worst case scenario, wouldn't he? Yeah, it is. It's hilarious. And as Julie rushes into the reception with the, with like a group of staff, you know, they're trying to get to the entrance and Britta stops them standing in front of the fake flames and advises her of the fireball and she's too late to go and to go back down the corridor, please. You have to admit, think of these things. Um, all the worst case scenarios is sort of safety reasons. I absolutely love the next bit. I think Laura's fantastic. She's got perfectly dry deliverance of lines in this episode and um yeah the next bit's really good she she kind of says she arrives and to ask mr britters if the last announcement was correct and he's like yes laura and then well according to my map you've blocked off t3 and all the others there's no way out fires don't happen where we want them laura they can be extremely inconvenient you don't think it's rather discouraging for people doing the exercise to know they've not got no chance of getting out alive yeah, she she's again. I mean, we've said it many million times, but she is obviously the voice of reason. And the way she always talks to Britis, it's that kind of trying to make him see the air of his own ways, the air of his thought process, so that when um, when they do, when he the penny drops, it's all Laura. If the penny drops. <laughs> Yeah, and then it finally drops. He's looking at Laura's map, Britus, and then um, he, he then gets straight to the tannoy and goes, a water storage tank has just burst, extinguishing the fire door in corridor T3. And he thought, you know what, let's burst the water tank once free. So it's giving the staff some help of surviving rather than burning to death. <laughs> yeah, and and like when they go to when they go to another, is it, is it T3 that, that Linda is uh, in front of the uh, fire doors? 
I think so. Well, it, well, he says the water storage tank has burst, extinguishing the fire in corridor T3. Yeah. So I don't know if that's the one where Linda is or not. But yeah, Linda's also oh, yeah. really a great highlight in this. She hasn't got an awful lot to do, but the bits she does, I think, are really funny. Well, she's just his puppet, basically. You know, she, she she's just doing everything. Doesn't want to. And everyone is kind of fed up with her. And then when they, the crowd go over to her, uh, she's like, no, this is on fire. And to make sure no one goes through and they're all kind of fed up, you know, they're going up and down everywhere. And, and after a while, Judy's like, they're imaginary frames, but I've got an imaginary extinguisher. And there we yeah. are. Just so well delivered because she just sees through all the BS of it all and just can't <laughs> be bothered with it. Definitely. Yeah. I think yeah, Julie represents that brash northerner who kind of doesn't take any crap, basically, and tells it how it is. I think what surprised me about this bit is just how many members of staff there is in the corridor. Yeah, we, we see a lot of faces here we don't normally see in the British Empire. And I think that's really interesting because I think it, it, it makes it feel a lot more real. I do like it when you see episodes where it's not just Tim, Gavin, Linda, Julie, the main characters, and you see a lot more sort of almost extras in the staff because it just makes it feel more real because obviously in a leisure center like this you are going to get loads and loads of staff because it's a massive building and i think when you get to series six and seven you've got particularly without laura you've only got three or four of the main characters in a staff meeting and you're thinking well where's the other 20 30 staff you know yeah and i'd be interested to know who these st um, staff members are they are extras actors crew members who are dressing up because it you're right yeah, i think it's believable and also you know with like a lot of workplaces it's like a revolving door there's always people coming and going i mean certainly it would be too town sense more people going yeah. except for the core people who for some reason stay and yeah it's it is it does make it more realistic i agree as the series progresses the staff shrink don't they i mean i don't remember seeing an awful lot of these faces, for example, in series four and five. So it does kind of shrink down quite a lot. And I think maybe that's just down to budget because obviously we heard, I know on your podcast, John, on the Don't Slam Your Podcast for 2.4 Children, Andrew Marshall, the creator, said how budgets got smaller and smaller each year. So I don't know if this was the case here where, you know, they couldn't afford to pay for all of these extra people. Well, and apparently it still stands today because one of our favourites, inside number nine uh rich v shearsmith says yeah it's the same every year that the budget just gets low and low and you think if you had a successful series yeah. and your game constantly continually renewed beyond five years why for some reason does the budget shrink and not increase or not increase a little bit you would have thought it'd be the other way wouldn't you really but it's yeah strange despite julie's best efforts to get get through with this imaginary fire extinguisher through the fire exit to complete this hideous task of um of all the training exercises, Britta's arrives and, <laughs> and and just sends them all the way back down the corridor saying, you know, no, there's flames here. You can't, you can't be here. And he says to Laura, um, but next time instead of, oh no, what would Mr. Britta say? How about a bit of realism? Oh, don't come this way. It's a raging inferno back there. See what I mean? So he's basically telling her how to do it, which is very important plot-wise for later on. Oh, it certainly is. Uh, yeah, everything, Bill, you know, everything as always, planting the seed for what's coming later on. I like the fact that all these extravagant ideas come into his brain. And yet in real life, rarely does it happen. But we, we do tell Anderson these things will happen two, three times a week. <laughs> Extreme place, working environment for Whitbury Leisure Centre, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> But uh, and again, I love how Colin is creeping behind Britus and Britus shouts Colin before he turns around and is there creeping behind with uh, obviously Hillary, who he draped her off his shoulder and another female member of staff with a fake, fake arm injury with a bandage on. It's just and he's like, and where do you think you're going, Colin? T3, Mr. Britus. It was a great relief to hear about the burst water tank. Colin, you are dead. 
I mean, that's what I thought. I'd almost given up the will to live. Somebody gave me this injection and they just slaps Colin in the face with this death sticker onto his mouth. It tells Colin and the two girls to go to reception to join all the other bodies. And I love how Colin says with the stickers on his mouth, yes, Mr. Rutherford. Yeah, even with his sticker over his mouth, he's still respectful. And it's, uh, again, a very busy reception, probably the busiest I've seen it, actually. You know, it's full of staff. The centre's still closed. And Carol is Carol is crying. And her whole boyfriend wants her to join him in Australia. But she needs 1200 to go. Well, £1,200, which would be a lot of money then, wouldn't it? I mean, it's a lot now, but it'd be even more then, I'm guessing, John. Oh, 100%. Well, actually, um, I recently did a bit of calculations of inflation because there's an inflation calculator on yeah. the internet for dollars and pounds and everything. And it's amazing. I, I, I don't know. I was looking at the budget for old films. I realized the first Indiana Jones movie came out in 1981, budgeted $20 million, which in inflation today is $67.5 million in today's money. And in 42 years, it's gone up by nearly $50 million. So yeah, no, it's crazy when you look back on these old shows and what, how much things cost and what things cost now, obviously with the inflation and everything, it's crazy. It would be interesting to adjust Titanic for inflation because I, I bet the budget there was absolutely huge for James Cameron's Titanic. Astronomical, I imagine. Yeah, that would yeah. be a very interesting. Yeah, from 1997 to 2023. So the police officer arrives with a handbag. So so Carol basically needs um, £1,200 to go to Australia. I didn't know. Is this a thing where the police officer comes in with the bag that Carol gave in and never been claimed, so he gave it back to her? Does that happen or did that used to happen? I mean, I think you'd still perhaps, they might have a lost property or something, but they'd probably expect the person to come and collect it or they have a protocol along those lines. I couldn't see the police officer coming out with something so trivial, really, unless it was different back then in the in the 90s. It's definitely a different world now. I don't think they would ever do that. I don't know what they'd do. They'd probably dispose it, probably. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure this police officer is the same one that was featured in Bottom in the burglary episode and played by Jonathan Strepp. I'm sure I plays a police officer in keep up appearances when Richard gets arrested in uh, either series three or four. Yeah, I think it could be him, actually. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. Also yeah. in EastEnders, he was in uh, Pryro as well, this police officer. Carol starts adding up the amount of money she needs to afford the flights to Australia. She overhears Tim and Gavin talking about a dead cert to win. And obviously, British advisors, the group of staff in reception, that casualties in the training exercise averaged out at 82%. And Colin says, does that include the suicides, Mr. Britas? Yeah, things are just getting worse for the staff because Brits is now add adding more disasters to the training exercises over the next couple of days. Chemical spillages, poisonous gases and a derailed train. It's madness. Absolutely madness. In a way, it's kind of hard to take seriously because you think, oh God, it would never happen. But in Gordon's brain, he really does think about everything, doesn't he? He does, yeah. All the worst catastrophes and stuff that, that unfortunately always seem to come true at Whitbury Leisure Centre. And of course, we've got Helen in Britta's office. Laura arrives and Helen advises how she's trying to give up the pills. You know, this is it. You know, she's making a, a lovely sort of picnic for her and Gordon Brittus. And she wants to try and promote being in a loving, healthy relationship because apparently, you know, Dr. Gray says that's, that's the secret. And I think Dr. Gray, that's the same one from series one, isn't it? Is that yeah. right? I think so. Yeah, it is. And I think because in the episode when the, when Carol and Britis are in the papers, doesn't see them one week. So I'm yeah. sure it was the same one. Yeah. So it's a nice bit of continuity there where they kept the same name as the, the doctor who appeared in um, series one, which was, which was good. But yeah, Helen basically just wants to be calm and relaxed for the parents evening tonight. She wants to give up the pills and have a loving relationship and just 
to really try and turn over a new leaf, I guess, with, with Brits. And, and it gives her more depth because I think in series one, she was very much a foil to kind of show Gordon Brittis' character. Whereas I think when we get to series two, Helen Brittis is very much more fleshed out. Last week's episode that we talked about listeners, she, um, as you know, she, we got to know about Helen's parents and the jam factory. And yeah, here we get, we get more of her character being fleshed out. Yeah. And I love, uh, we've said before in terms of the replacement of the Pam character, with Laura being her sort of best friend, as it were. And I do like their interaction when Laura warns her that Briss is going to be a little bit late and explains, you know, she's like, Helen says, anything serious? She's, oh no, too many people died. So we're doing it all again. And then again, I love how Pippa Haywood delivers all her lines. When she's calm, she has this jolliness and she says, I'm trying to give her all the pills, you know, the Valium. The diazepans, the Librium, well, all of them. Yeah, I think what's interesting about Brittis is you do see a lot of the characters all trying to grow in some ways. Like you see Helen Brittis trying to grow out of the character that she is, which is this neurotic pill popping character. And we see Brittis, you know, again, trying to be fixed by Laura. So it's quite interesting how this kind of it zooms in on the character traits of each each individual in the show and it tries to we try to see them get fixed and actually this ambition to change as characters. And then she, she mentions, um, the marriage guidance and I like, and said about, you know, it was important to spend more time with each other, just talking. Um, and then Laura says, that'll help you stay calm. She says, no, but I've tried everything. Yeah. Acupuncture, aromatherapy, export lager. <laughs> See, I, I never laughed at that originally, and then I watched it today, and I, I found it really funny. It's funny how sometimes things that you don't find funny in the past, when you rewatch them, they become funny or funnier. Yeah, no, it did some. Again, it's one of those things as you get older, you appreciate little details. I was watching um, Bridget Jones' Diary last night for the first yeah. time in quite a few years, and it's one of those films. Now I'm older, you can see get not just the more adult jokes, let's see the, the kind of more rude ones, but just the ones that are great observations of life. And adult struggles. I think these shows are, are as fresh and they're, and they're still as fresh to watch in general. So it's nice as, ad, as adults so we can appreciate them even more. Yeah. I still have to Google some references in 2.4 children, but that's part of the fun. <laughs> yeah. Same. I, I, I don't mind niche references because you just learn new things. So we're at the back of the reception desk and, um, Carol asks Tim and Gavin about the, um, the horse. Uh, she's obviously wants to put a bet on it. They've got a hot tip. We're going to put 50 quid on it. Uh, she asked if they could do put some on. And is it a dummy, a dummy that's on the floor? Oh, do you know what? I don't think I noticed that. No, what was it? What, like a, like a baby dummy or? Yeah. He's, 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 yeah. It's like, because Gorn says that like lady's life is ebbing away. It's not the time for gossiping. Oh, right. Yeah. Well, I think it must be like a, like a fake sort of training dummy or one of those, uh, first aid ones maybe <laughs> and i like how gordon gets very um, moralistic about that the similar to later on with cigarettes carol do we have money to throw away 10 talks about putting into a building society you know you put in a hundred pounds and after a year um you will have grown to 108 pound 50. it's always interesting like jokes regarding money because obviously the monetary amounts then are different to what they are now so to us that seems even more petty that it's only gone up by eight pound because i bet then it perhaps would have been a bigger increase like maybe 80 quid or something but the fact it is only an eight pounds interest increase uh, now it, i think makes the joke uh, a little more funnier as well laura arrives and advises the staff out um, out of the building safely in the car park and Brittis is like out but they can't be we had the fireball yet Half of them are still trapped in the squash court. They broke out of there with a sledgehammer. I'm all for using imagination, Laura, but for a start, there's a low-bearing wall. You couldn't... No, no, they've done it. They smashed a hole in the back. They what? Well, it was Colin, really. I don't know where he found the sledgehammer, though. Colin is dead. The lavatory roof fell on his head. I saw it. Our UC, he told me he had been left dead. 
but in fact was only stunned. A miraculous recovery. Colin is dead. I'll kill him. I think even in every moment, when even when people uh, use their imagination and try and think outside the box, Gordon is, even though Gordon encourages like individual thought, he still likes to be in control. I just, yeah, like I say, I just love this this recurring joke of Colin constantly being invincible because of all the people to survive all this, it's Colin is the opposite with his yeah. boils and his, his bad cardigan and everything else. It's just... He's a superhero, he is not, let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely not. Carol gives Gavin the bag. I like this scene, this next scene with um, Gavin and Helen in the office. It's a, it's an odd little scene, actually, um, in the sense that, firstly, she's sort of um, drinking wine, so she's getting, trying to get away from the tablets, but still likes the alcohol. But she's asking Gavin about how he copes with stress, and she's like, drugs are not the answer, Gavin, and then she's like, we're going a glass of wine. <laughs> it's so subtly that I love comedy performance like that where a character says something and then acts doing you know in a hypocritical way but the performer does it in such a smooth nonchalant without really thinking it way it's it's just so seamless and effortless um but i love the fact that she asks gavin can i ask you something personal she mentions you know what you need is a warm loving relationship with someone who can give you support and a center to your life and you know that she's clearly regurgitating what the guidance counselors told her both have a cigarette together. What I find really interesting is clearly what Helen said to Gavin about having a real relationship. She doesn't know about him and Tim. And yet when he mentions about that's what Tim says, he hates me saying I have to do it in the garden. Because Helen knows later, doesn't she? Or unless she knows, just doesn't draw attention to it because it is quite subtly done. But yeah, we definitely get more of an insight of Gavin and Tim or Timmy, as he calls him, living together and how he hates him smoking and sends him outside. I do like the line that she says, I don't think people should pressure their partners. Now, I don't know about you, but partners is a term I've noticed people say more in the last sort of five, ten years. Gay, straight, relationship, whatever. We're always with the other half as a partner rather than boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever. So it's, I don't know where that's come from, but it's interesting yeah. she says it then. Because I know um, a girl in one of my fitness classes and she spoke about a partner and she's like 24. And I just think, oh, partner seems quite formal to me. But um, yeah, it must be something that people use now. I mean, I wasn't aware of it because it does sound quite formal to me. No, I get that. It's like you run if it's a business partner. <laughs> yeah. Yes, my partner. Yeah. Like I'm dragging us down or something. I think what's interesting about this is you don't really see a lot of people smoking on TV anymore, do you? Particularly, I think if you did 830 sitcom wise, it, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, John, but I don't think you see a lot of people with cigarettes, particularly in a mainstream show anymore. I don't think you can now. I'm sure something came right. in a couple of years ago that said it, it had to be a post a watershed thing. And interestingly, oh. when you watch something like um, Disney Plus, or if they ever show, I can't remember which Disney film it is uh, now, but if it's, they always have like a, a, the, the top corner at the beginning of the film, a sort of rating seven plus or whatever. And and, and some one of them is maybe bad language, mild bad, but it's always tobacco use. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's interesting how it's, times have changed because I know back in the day, especially when I watch old sitcoms, there's a lot more smoking going on and it's it's all pretty much okay. Like if you watch Men Behaving Badly in the pub, for example, and um, I tell you what is interesting how Helen says Britis leaves health leaflets around with pictures, pictures of people's lungs on. And that's the exact thing that's on cigarette packets today. So he's very much ahead of his time, Britis, in that sense. <laughs> very ahead of them. When did that happen? Do you know when they started putting pictures like that on cigarette packets? I'm not too sure, to be honest. I mean, it wasn't an awful long time ago. I mean, it was definitely either in the two, well into the 2000s or even in this decade, just gone. But yeah, yeah it wasn't. It definitely wasn't a 90s thing. I mean, now it's kind of, you get these awful, when I see people smoking, I see packets of cigarettes, you know, the, the teeth and the facts and stuff. I'm thinking, if that doesn't stop you from smoking, I don't know what will, because that would put me off. You know what I mean? Let alone the price. <laughs> 
Yeah, I used to, I worked at WH Smiths for a short while when I was a teenager and we had a cigarette board behind us, the till, and yeah, you just grab it and look at it. Horrible. I'm just not a fan. I think, you know, it, it kind of, I don't like the smell as well. You know, you know, and if it combines with deodorant or perfume, the combination of smoke and perfume, yeah. I just think it's a bit of a... Beyond, beyond, beyond the, the, the health stuff, right, which is kind of so obvious, obvious it doesn't, I'm saying it's the smell. I'm with you. It just doesn't smell very good. It just kind of lingers as well, the smoke of cigarettes, doesn't it? I, I, I can yeah, still smell, smell even now yeah. my grand, my now deceased grandma and uh, granddad's house of cigarette. I can still smell that now. And you, you, you'd go away from that house and your clothes would just reek of smoke forever. And yeah. uh, I think the same with cars and stuff like that. You, just, you can't shake that smell, can you? No, you can't. I, uh, I, having grown up in a non-smoking house, you can smell it so easily. Next up, we hear that Brutus is on his way to his office and Helen and Gavin are panicking because they've got cigarettes in their hands. And Gavin has brought up this handbag from Carol with the £100 in from the policeman. And Helen panics and puts the cigarette in the handbag. Mr. Brutus walks in. Gavin is far too innocent to kind of hide anything. And he's just stood there and he's just frozen with a cigarette in his hands, isn't he? You know, when he says, you know, um, what have we said about how he's smoking being for the weak will? Sort of saying to, about, should apologize to Mrs. Brutus for shortening her life, potentially shortening her life by three minutes because of my thoughtless, selfish behaviour. So it just talks to him like a child, doesn't he? And this scene was actually shown in the 1992 interview with Chris Barry on the Terry Wogan show. Uh, Terry Wogan says of Brutus in that particular interview that he's awful and doesn't deserve any sympathy. I mean, I don't really agree with that. Chris Barry did say to counter that, you know, he said basically he's very much the victim in this series, you know, with the inspector and everything. And he always means well, and which I thought was interesting because I think Chris Barry is right. And I think, I don't think Terry Wogan necessarily got his character correct. I mean, I know Brutus is awful, but I disagree with the fact that he doesn't deserve sympathy because we do sympathize with Gordon Brutus quite a lot. It's particularly in series two, don't we? I think it's one of those things. It's interesting when you speak to people about certain programs or, or t uh, films, different perspectives. You know, I think some people very much see things at face value. He's rude, he's arrogant, and that's it. Because we're doing this for podcasts, we're watching it very closely. We're trying to find every little detail so that we can reference it now. But I think it's interesting how I didn't used to be like that. I used to watch things. And I used to take things in, but I, I take things in more intently now. And I think it, I just look back now and a lot of things that I used to watch, you'd watch it, but you weren't always engaged with it as much. So yeah. you miss certain things and you miss the certain nuances and, and, and the, the depth in a way. But as well, I think back then comedy was just so around that people took it for granted that they just thought, oh, it's just British is the silly sitcom about the leisure centre rather than what it actually was a very, 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 as you say, three dimensional. We also hear in this particular interview in 1992, because this, this interview was basically when series two was, was happening. So that was the current series then. And uh, Terry asks uh, where the voice came from. And Chris Barry says it, he went on a tour with a musical director who spoke like Brutus, <laughs> or at least that's what he thought. Um, he always believed he was right and it always you know, refused to take shortcuts or listen to anybody else because he always knew the correct direction um, in the in the minivan or whatever it was. And he, he always thought he was in the right. And you can see where that was kind of brought into Chris Barry's way of acting with Gordon Brittus. I like that. I mean, you know, actors always build, they base their characters on someone or something, you know. Um, and I think it makes sense that it would be someone who was uh, some kind of manager in managerial or the theatre director, you know. Yeah. I, can, I can definitely imagine a theatre director being like Chris. 
Yeah. What was interesting about this interview is it kind of, um, Chris Barry got across how it's kind of 80% the voice and the rest sort of falls into place. And he said a lot of the shaking of the head and the hand gestures of Gordon Brittis actually came from his neighbour. So I don't know if his neighbour ever found out that. And, and as Chris Barry says, Brittis learns a lot of his stuff about people from a book, which I think is so true. And I think that's probably why he gets things so wrong. Similarly as well, Basil Forty also says that he learns about you know, what makes a successful marriage and he learns it on the the back of the matchbox they're not really not really kind of being people people not being able to deal with people and perhaps learn things in the wrong places rather than authentically must be some kind of mindset really i think so yeah we these kind of characters very right, have, have got similarities it must be be like with human beings you know we all have certain social groups or certain people who are you can categorize and they've got similar mindsets and stuff it's very interesting in the office helen shows britta's the lunch she's made and she's i love this bit where she just stuffs his pockets full of all the pills she's giving them up <laughs> and they're about to have like a toast i just it's just a great scene that seen that have pile all these pills into poor gordon's pockets thing is in this moment she is essentially going cold turkey which yeah. is difficult for anyone to do is even if you're giving trying to go caffeine for example to just stop it it's, it's yeah it's um, really hard it, again it's just great to see that i think pippa hayward has so much more to do in this series compared to series one and here's a great example because this is very much a helen heavy episode helen heavy episode and there's just lots for her to do in it and she's such a a great character helen Brittis, and pippa hayward is such a great actress it's just great to see more of her in this series kind of similar actually to last week's episode with his dad in that he gets so busy no always have the time and stuff uh, and they have a toast and you know i think helen actually thinks at this point she's optimistic that you know she can fix this relationship fix her life without pills gordon's there having a toast with her they're about to settle down to eat this picnic that she's put out and uh, julie arrives to say counselor dapping has arrived in reception so uh, yeah helen's getting a bit angry isn't she at this point knowing that gordon's gonna leave her for counselor dapping she's so determined i think she's one of those people but she's also very anxious insecure needy and yeah she's just a very easy a short fuse <laughs> thing as well yeah you see that contrast here between helen Brittis and gordon Brittis, and you, you can kind of see in the way why they're together you've got helen who's the erratic one and then gordon Brittis is that calm orderly, orderly one in the relationship that brings all the order because he is kind of you're being a bit unreasonable i'll pop down see what she wants and come back up five minutes it's like mm, it's not gonna be five minutes <laughs> that's all it's great because the audience laugh at, and I think we already know that a Gordon Britta's five minutes is not a normal person's five minutes, is it? Takes yeah. a handbag to get away for, away for the pills away from me. It's like, mm. Oh, do you know what? I love this next scene, John, as well. In the corridor and Britta's offends the woman in overalls because he... <laughs> He thinks she's a man. He's gone to the storage cupboard to put the, the bag in lost property. And there's a, I think it's a woman in overalls and she's trying to go to the, the female toilets and he's saying that she can't go in there. Yeah. <laughs> She turns around and I am a woman. And then yes. uh, in that case, can I introduce you into the women's rugby club? <laughs> it's just, oh, I love it. It's such a funny moment. Yeah, he's got, he's, 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 um, no filter, clueless, everything we say about him. He's just typical of Chris. And then obviously puts the bag in the, um, in the root in the store cupboard and yeah, a little smoke. <laughs> and yeah, this episode, obviously, uh, which we find out soon is our first fire of the series, the British Empire. There's no shortage of fires and electrocutions, but I, I, I just love the fact that we've been built up this way. So we start off with there being, um, a fire safety training and then it all builds to an actual fire and, and you yeah. kind of know it's going to happen when the, the bags put away and it starts smokes a little bit 
and with Councillor Dapping, obviously, it's the return of Councillor Dapping as well. So um, it's the second and last appearance of Councillor Mrs Dapping, and she's not convinced that they need an extra fire escape. But whereas Britis wants an extra fire escape because uh, the one on the roof only holds eight people, and he thinks it's not enough. The dynamic between Britis and Mrs Dapping, I think, is a good one. It's like you've got sort of an antagonist other than Julie who's kind of against Britus and what he's trying to do, basically. It's one of those, isn't it? Like, I can imagine for Councillor Dapping, there are those people she just dreads seeing and dealing with. Yeah. Um, because I think that's everyone sort of has that, especially if it's outsourced or people you go into other businesses and you meet certain people you don't like. Yeah. Not that I'm in a magic managerial position of any kind to do things like that, but I can imagine. Obviously, Britus wants to show Councillor Dapping from reception into the rooftops where this questionable fire escape is and Carol advises her money has been sent to Britis's office where it's uh, nice and safe. <laughs> and Britis says how she can sleep easy knowing the money's safe. And then we cut to a, the storage cupboard where there is a fire starting. The, the fire in the British Empire and stuff, it's very well done. Yeah, it's going back to what I said last to Steve Lucas. He, I mean, I mean, it must have been a lot of fun to do this show. And, and he oh, said, yeah. when I spoke to him, you know, the, the comedy show with the most effects in it and who's with it throughout the whole run. So he'll, every effect that we'll have watched on British Empire will have been him. And yeah, it's just so, again, I've said before, it's nice to watch a show where the money's put into it and it's just a bit exciting. And it's not just character comedy and, and dialogue. It's very uh, well put together. Yeah. Farce and production values, the set. And yeah, it's always nice to have some uh, effects in it. What struck me about watching this episode, it just reminded me of just how good the series is and how good series two is as well in particular it's just it's such a brilliantly written you know so funny you know the acting is so great and obviously part of this podcast is just to celebrate how good this show is because it's just so criminally underrated i mean i, I watched this episode and i was just laughing and it was just it's just so clever the way they integrate bits of the story and you can see the the detail in the writing where they drop one seed to bring back later and it's just it, it just feels like you're watching something that's almost like a, a play or a film. It's just so detailed and layered and there's so much going off. It is, it's more than just, you know, people write it off as a silly leisure center sitcom. It, it's so much more than that. If you watch um, series one to five, it, it really is. The narrative structure, as I say, with this idea of safety exercise following an actual fire and building it up, especially in this scene when they're up on the, in the, uh, by the fire escape. Um, and then, you know, they mentioned that the ladder in the room has a capacity for only eight people. Linda comes and gives Brits an envelope. And I love these envelopes from Helen, don't you? With like bits of glass and fish and soup in them. <laughs> oh, I mean, it's like, um, in Fatal Attraction, you know, with the bunny boil in the pot because yeah. it's just, it's just her being so angry. I also like, um, when he says, you know, let me paint you a picture. We have electricians up here attending to a lighting problem. And I like her, Mrs. Ca Ca Council Daffling's face dropping and she says, because he knows he's going to go on a ramble. The police yeah. are fitting a new pipe. Carpenters are fitting shelves while outside a team of lads are painting the fire escape. My staff have brought them, brought them all tea. That makes 14 people, Mrs. Dapper. Uh, and then she's like, Mr. Brittis, a plumber's blowtorch accidentally ignites some carpet wood shavings blocking up the stairs. Uh, the stairs are ablaze. 14 panicked and desperate men trample their way onto a fire escape made for eight. Not very likely, is it? Having you consider the six men retooling the roof after a storm? It's unrealistic, you know, this will never happen, Mr. Britus. You know, that's that's kind of her her opinion. And and Britus is like, well, if you're prepared to go on the six o'clock news having to admit to Kate Adie, you thought a proper fire escape wasn't necessary. 
And then Dappin says, that's the risk I'm prepared to take. <laughs> Dappin, um, how do you think she compares to Councillor Druggett and John, who comes in in series four? To me, Mrs. Dappin was always a lot softer and yeah. Councillor Druggett was a lot more nastier, meaner. And I think, I think that, I think that's why they switched it up, I think, really, because it had more of an impact in series four with obviously we'll come on to, but Councillor Druggett always struck me as a bit more crueler than Mrs. Dappin. Yeah. You needed someone who's antagonistic to, to go, to yeah. go up against Gold Britters. You needed someone more British than British, I think, in a way. Colin brings another envelope from Helen Brittis, which I think is soup this time in a, in a bag. Gordon's day is just going from bad to worse. Councillor uh, Dapper finds the smoke coming from the door of the property room and, and then opens it. And it's, and it's a really good effect when she opens the door and it's like, the, yeah. you know, the, the orange flames and the smoke coming out. It does look like a real fire. Well, when I watch old sitcoms, even with 40 Towers, I think the fire's done pretty well there as well. They seem to have nailed... A fake fire in sitcom land. It really did. Yeah. No, that one with when Manuel gets his hands stuff. Yeah. Caught on fire. It's very, it's very effective, actually, doesn't it? Yeah. Not really good. We cut to the office and Helen is smashing things up. She's not very happy. Britis has gone off and, you know, he said he was going to be five minutes. And it's, it's one of my favorite lines of this episode. You said you'd be when you weren't <laughs> to Britis. So I'm a couple of minutes late. I just, yeah, this is just a great, great scene with her smashing things up. And I love how she's just waving, waving around this fish as she's talking about, I was a Paris even. I wanted to be calm. Just. I just the fish makes it for me this scene <laughs> oh yeah and then he's like you're ill and she's like I'm not ill and he goes ordinary women do not put soup into bags in a way it's quite sad I think because you know we saw Helen quite calm and she started the day quite optimistic with a little picnic hamper and she, she thought she really could fix herself and her marriage and it's quite sad really seeing her get to this state it's funny but at the same time a bit tragic isn't it because you think oh poor Helen she really did honestly think that you know Today was the day where she could give up her pills and, and fix her marriage. And now she's in tears, flapping a fish around, swinging a fish around at Gordon. <laughs> yeah. and, and when we go back to the corridor with the fire, when Councillor Dapping talks to Linda and mentions that there's a fire, yes. is Linda take? I, I, I'm assuming Linda assumes it's, it's a test. That's what I thought, because obviously earlier in, in the episode, Britus wanted her to adapt more realism and say, you know, there's, there's an inferno, there's an inferno. And I thought here, Linda believes this is still an exercise. She doesn't think it's real because that's why she's stopping them from getting past the corridor, which in turn leads them up to the roof. So I think she still thinks this is an exercise. It's done really good by uh, Jill Greenacre because I feel like, you know, obviously if that was Laura, it wouldn't work. If it was probably Colin, it wouldn't work. But because she's so enthusiastic, you kind of believe it because it's Laura, uh, Linda, sorry. It's a, it's a bit naive for her to believe there's no real fire, but it kind of works, I think. Yeah, it does, because I think you have to believe in one way that um, that combination of it being a real fire, but with some people thinking it being in the mindset of it being an exercise, that's a combination for disaster. Yeah, yeah. And it's just it just shows how British is very much at the heart of this chaos, because if it wasn't for British telling Linda to do this, then they would be able to get out of the building without going up to the, the dreaded fire escape, which which is what happens next. And then we're back in the office with Gordon and Helen, and it's mentioned earlier, we really lovely scene. And there's some moments yeah. in British Empire where there's mo where it's between Gordon and, and Helen. We've already had a couple this season already. I love the way he um he mentions about um having his uh, having an affair. You know, I have a mistress, and she's like, "No, no, you don't, Gordon." He talks about how he's sorry and he apologizes. He was wrong, and she's like, "It doesn't matter." And he's like, "You forgive me, my darling. I think it does. You needed me, and I wasn't there. The least you deserve it is an explanation." And I love her response. Oh God, do I? 
just it just it just shows that actually despite all the the turmoil they go to just talking it through like a lot of couples should do it's uh they they get through it and it's um it's very it's a it's even though it's quite it can be quite a turmoil relationship in lots of ways it is quite a healthy one in other ways and i think what this scene proves more than anything is that it's more than just a it's not a cartoon this this um series despite how wild it gets you know there's a lot of serious real moments about kind of relationships and things and i think here this is another one of those moments where Britus isn't being wacky or crazy you know he's, he's a human being and we've seen him really put his cards on the table and he says uh you're not the only woman in my life i have a mistress and then like you say he says no you don't and i do she's demanding takes up my time drains my energy and in her own kind of way needs me every bit as you do when she calls I can't refuse her. And Hans' response, it's not Mrs. Mrs. Dappin, is it? <laughs> I thought it was a yeah, great and the way she, Again, she says it's so kind of dry. She probably doesn't care if he had an effect. She's had many herself. She couldn't, she couldn't really, she couldn't really complain. Yeah. But he talks about the centre. And as you say, you know, I know we, we always joke and there's always these lines where he has a monologue where he says, you know, the building, the philosophy, the dream. Sometimes in forging that dream and holding things together in moulding the community into one, I forget that I have a flesh and blood wife as well. <laughs> Great, it's all between the two and perhaps now is the time to remind myself oneself that one is far more important than the other and they said like, which one gordon door opens julie you have a safe five safe you have a safety exercise starting in 10 minutes he's like it's cancelled and then he's like i'll be in conference with my wife for the next 35 minutes and i do not wish to be disturbed yeah i think what's interesting about this is it, it shows even britters can grow and he can put his rules aside at some point it is not like as terry wogan says you know just his odious manager you know he is an odious manager in many ways he is irritating and stuff and rightly so but um it can also put his rules aside and he is actually a fully rounded character where we see britters you know say do you know what forget about it despite everything despite how anal i am you know forget about it all let's just focus on my wife and it just shows that if he could just tweak his character slightly he could probably have a happy relationship with helen that's a sad truth i think they're not far away from having that perfect relationship or a happy relationship if they just tweaked each other slightly and kept there but it never does does it it always tips back to the wrong way <laughs> and so when we go back to the this fourth floor and everyone going out into that room going onto that ladder um councillor dapping's the last one and then she's like it's not safe there's too many of you it won't take you away ah and then they thought she falls back that was that was a really good um and then crashing sound it's uh, it was quite very realistic wasn't it it was very well done yeah joe kendall played mrs dapping listeners if, you, if you're not sure and she was born on 17th of february 1940 in cleethorpe's and she's known for the remains of the day 1993 yes and howard's end 1992 and scum 1979 have you uh seen any of those john i don't i haven't heard of them personally i've got scum um it was a film that was a tv move for the bbc um that was banned and then they made a movie version of it with ray winstone oh, right, in okay. a prison very good the remains of the days anthony hopkins oh. and emma thompson i think my mum saw oh. i think my mum had it on video but i've never seen it myself she died last year uh, well depending on where you when you're listening to it listeners if you're listening to it in 10 years maybe but um yeah she died in 2022 so yeah. the same year interestingly she died in the same year as in councillor druggett you know the recurring character from series four played yeah. by stephen churchett so they both both councillors died in 2022 in the, in real life rest in peace because two great actors there uh, who played two amazing characters in the british empire and then we cut to the news reporter outside and i love this bit john because it's like she's looking at the camera and again you've got these different layers of how this you know sitcom plays out it's just it's normal standard comedy fare and and, and chaos but it's quite unusual it kind of breaks the form in a way with the reporter looking at us as she's speaking which i thought was quite interesting 
Yeah, I, I agree. It's nice to still break that um, format a little bit, yeah. making it really believable in the world of the show. But it's also quite interesting that it's now a national TV. The <laughs> disaster at Ruby New Town is going to go across the country. You know, it's got that kind of believability that the that it isn't just self-contained, that it's being opened up for the world to penalise Britain and the, the culture of Whitby Newtown Leicester Centre. She might have been an actual news anchor at the time, maybe, Carol Jones. I'm not too sure. Because a lot of the time they bring in Pam Robes for the Songs of Praise episode, for example, and stuff, and they bring in Sebastian Coe. It would actually be real people, wouldn't it? They'd actually bring in not just fictional characters. She says, uh, the accident happened early this afternoon when a fire escape toppled from the far side of the building behind me and 14 people fell nearly 80 feet. And it gets a good laugh that from the audience. It is just kind of darkly funny, isn't it? I don't know why it is funny, but it is funny, isn't it? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> you know, it, it, it just... It just anything with a bit of dark humor and physical harm in a comedy just seems to always be funny i don't know why and she says the manager of the center is gordon Britus. i've been told the fire escape has only been designed to hold eight people and then Britus says uh, i like to put on record i take full responsibility of everything that happened here this afternoon the only thing i can offer in my defense i do have three letters i wrote over a period of months to the council begging them to replace this very fire escape did you get a reply I downright refusal at first, but I persisted. And after the third letter, they sent someone at, at last to take a look at the problem. And, well, the tragic irony is that Councillor Dapping was one of the people involved in the inju injured in the accident. In fact, she fell further than most. It's all very sad. I found that really funny the way he says Councillor Dapping fell, fell further than most. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I like when the um, the newsreader goes over to the man and says, "Sorry, Peter, can we do that again? Maybe in front of the bodies." And then obviously Linda arrives um, to, to to Gordon Britus with another envelope with some a twisted knife and a twisted fork, a pair of cutlery from Helen Britus, and it's just it's so mangled and twisted you can just see that <laughs> the rage has absolutely hit its height with with Helen Britus. Yeah, and a. Uh, and a fury. She will not be going to his parents' evening tonight, calm. She'll be going to it with the soup in her hair and a twisted knife. <laughs> yeah. And I like when the last thing that he does is give um, Linda all the pills back and say, I think she better have these and these and these two. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, th I like that's a good way to end the episode, really, that actually everything seemed calm. And in the beginning of the day, they had, you know, yeah, it was just going to be a fire exercise. There was a real fire and injuries. Then it was Helen was going to get off the pills. She's back on the pills. You know, yeah. it's just one of those things where a day in the life of Whitby Newtown Leisure Centre is just not one if you want to have a happy life at all. I don't think I can think of another sitcom where so much happens in half an hour. It's never a dull moment. And um, yeah, the, the, some sitcoms, you know, can be quite minimal. And, you know, it suits that particular sitcom. But with the British, you know, it's never a dull moment, is it? There's always stuff happening. There's always stuff to discuss because the plots are so huge and ambitious. No, I agree. It's got that believability factor. Real, unreal, comedy, darkness, dark yeah. comedy. Yeah, it's it's brilliant. This was a really good, actually, I think a really good penultimate episode, despite what the Radio Times said. It's a good yeah. penultimate episode, actually, to the finale because it's quite big. Um, it's more of an outlandish sort of set plot. And yet um, nothing tied up completely. So we've got one more to, to go. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, which we'll come on to next week, which will be the final episode, listeners. And as always, we finish with a British quiz on this particular episode. So five questions as always. How well have you been watching? How well have you been listening? We'll find out now. So question one of five. Um, what is the name of the girl draped over Colin's shoulder at the start of the episode? So, yeah, there's some quite difficult questions here. I've gone a bit hard on you this week, listeners, but uh, we'll see how we go. So question one, what is the name of the girl draped over Colin's shoulder at the start of the episode? 
again, a very quite a difficult question that. I mean, I don't think I would know it personally unless I was writing the questions. And another slightly obscure question. I'm starting, I'm starting to reading these back now. I feel like I'm being a bit harsh, but oh, well, we love a challenge, right? We love a challenge. And um, question two, what colour armband is Britus wearing? So he wears something which resembles something from the past, which I'll perhaps mention at the end, which I thought was a bit <laughs> questionable, but there we go. What colour armband is Britus wearing? So the colour of that. Number three, how much money is in the handbag? So Carol gets this handbag from the policeman. There's a sum of money in that handbag. How much is in it that Carol can claim? Obviously, it goes up in smoke, but, you know, that would have gone to a trip to Australia. Carol's dreams, once again, have been burnt in the fire. What Question four, what is the capacity of the ladder fire exit on the top floor? So is it A, can it hold six people? B, can it hold eight people or C, can it hold 10 people? All right. So that's the capacity of the, the fire exit at the top, which poor Mrs. Dappin falls further than most on. So it's um, A6, B8 or C10. What's the capacity? And uh, do you know what? I think I've just given the answer to the last one, listeners. But considering some of those questions were quite tough, you can have this an easy question and have a point. Uh, who falls further than most? Which character? So, yeah, you should all get that one. <laughs> I'll give you that easy one there. I kind of give you the answer to that one, but you know what? There's a few hard questions there, so I can I can let you off. What do you think, John? Do you think I was too cruel with that quiz this week? Um, I think I've got about four, three. Um, oh, first that's... two were quite tricky, and then the last one, two were very easy. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, so who's the girl draped over Colin's shoulder? What's her name at the start of the episode? Grace. It's Hillary, actually. Hillary, Hillary, yeah. yes. Hillary, yeah. And then, um, what colour armband is Britus wearing? Green. It's red. Yeah. Red. Yeah. But the reason the reason why I thought it was funny is because I felt like it reminded me of like a, a Nazi band yes. on his arm. You know, yeah. being quite evil and brutal, and this idea of him being like <laughs> not that Britus is a Nazi, of course, but you know that's what it reminded me of. Um, how much money is in the handbag, John? One hundred pounds. That's correct. It is. And then tricky one. What is the capacity of the ladder? on the fire exit on eight. the top floor. Eight people. It is. It's eight people. Yeah. Well done, listeners, if you got that. Quite a, a tricky one. And then for, finally, who falls further most? Which character? Councillor Dapper, bless her. Yeah. Poor Mrs. Dapping. Mrs. Dapping. Yeah, Dapping, she, sorry. I think I called Dapper for some reason. I don't know. Yeah. She's quite dapper, I suppose, in a hat. <laughs> Not my type, but there we go. Um, well then listeners if you want to send us your scores it's britishempirepod at gmail.com if you've got any feedback or if you want to kind of you know tell us what you like or what you don't like about the podcast maybe what you'd like to see in future episodes that we do do tell us all feedback's good feedback rate us five stars on Apple if you can that sends, sends us up in the right direction and also give us some reviews on Spotify and yeah have you got any final thoughts John or final words yeah I know it's, it's a really great episode and I look forward to next week's, which actually is probably one of the first episodes of British Empire I ever watched. Which oh, really? New Generation. So a pregnant cow is at the leisure centre. Uh, obviously, I'm not referring to Carol, obviously. Carol <laughs> is obviously pregnant as well, but there's an actual cow that's pregnant in the leisure centre that gives birth and Carol gives birth as well. But will Gordon find out that he's the father? 
Join us next week for the final episode of Series 2. As ever, you can connect with other British Empire fans via Facebook and Instagram at British Fan, followed by our good friend Louise. And you can also follow the Facebook page, the British Empire Appreciation Society. And of course, you can buy the British Empire on DVD and it's available to stream on BritBox currently. Thank you very much for listening and follow the fire regulations. Next week is going to be utterly brilliant. Bye.